We'll see how this goes. I wrote this in four pieces. I didn't like assemble all of it until this morning. And then I uploaded it to my iPad. So we'll see what we get. <laughs> Schedule was a little intense this week. And the other thing I found out is I'm digging through all of my, I was going to go look at the Palm Sundays that I had done before. And so I've been doing this almost 10 years now. And it turns out that in all the times that Simon had me do it, and the times that you all have allowed me to come up here and deliver a message, I have never done a Palm Sunday before. So that was a little bit of a surprise. And uh, so I want you to imagine I have four Bibles laid out, my Strong's Concordance, and I'm trying to dig through everything and figure out what's going on. I had my, my ESV, my NASB, my interlinear Hebrew and Greek and English, and then I had my Wycliffe just for fun. Um, the Wycliffe is always funny because it was written in 1395, and it's amazing. If you look at the words, you go, this is not English. This is not English. But if you phonetically pronounce it, and you, you, it's actually understandable. It's just the way that they didn't have like a set way of spelling things. And so you have all these, it's, you know, all these extra vowels and, and, and consonants that are in these words, and it's like, this is not English. All right, Palm Sunday. All of you are much aware of what goes into a Palm Sunday. We've talked about many of these pieces before. Today I'm going to try and thread some of these pieces together that you've heard before. I, I've talked about these, and we're going to see how all of this points us to Jesus this last week before he is resurrected. And the passages for Palm Sunday, and I suggest all of you read these, um, Matthew 21, 1 through 11, Matthew 21, 1 through 11, that's the one we're actually going to go through today, here. And then Mark 11, 1 through 11, Mark 11, 1 through 11, if you do Mark 11 and Matthew 21 together, they're incredibly parallel. Um, Luke 19, Luke 19, 28 to 40. Luke 19, 28 to 40. And John 12, 12 to 19. John 12, 12 to 19. I selected Matthew for our passage to look at. Why Matthew? Matthew focuses on the kingship of Jesus. And um, as I was going through each of my Bibles, it was really apparent as you look at Matthew how different Matthew is compared to the others. Okay. I found several things out about the king of Israel, and I'd like you to find them as we look at this passage and we'll go through. All right? So let's start. Verses 1 through 3. So this is Matthew 21. And we're looking at 1 through 11. We're going to start at verses 1 through 3. 
Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, and they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So in verse 1 here, Jesus sends two of his disciples into the next little village to collect the mama donkey and her foal. And the word sent here that gets used in Greek is epistele, which is the root of the word from which we get the word apostle. And the word there means sent. And literally, an apostle is one who is called to be sent. In our tradition, that's what it means. And Jesus is the one who selects who of those would be sent to spread the gospel. In a way, we're all called by Jesus to spread the good news. And in that way, we are all apostles with the lowercase a. But the select, and by the way, it's 14 to 16 people, depending on how you look at it. You can, you can argue about that. A lot of people still do that were personally sent by Jesus are apostles with an uppercase A. Next we have Jesus sending two of his disciples to bring a mama donkey and her foal. The foal will follow wherever the mama goes. So this makes it much easier for the foal to do this. And a last note here, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem from Bethphage. This is on the east side of Jerusalem, and the walls of the temple courtyard faces the valley there on the east. Jesus is approaching the city to pass through the east gate, and that is also near the temple east gate. And the east gate here is significant, as we will see. Verses 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. A donkey. What is the significance of a donkey? Why a donkey? It turns out that in the Old Testament, donkeys are a very big deal. Let's go all the way back to Genesis 22, 5. Genesis 22, 5. Actually, I'm going to read from 1 through 5 here. And this is the sacrifice of Isaac. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. A donkey. Now it turns out that the elders of the tribes 
that live in Canaan and in this part of the Middle East, in the springtime when they would go out, they would ride donkeys. And it was a symbol of wealth to do this, of wealth and of power. You could think of these guys as the oligarchs of the Middle East. They would ride donkeys. Now, this is sort of a, it's sort of the opposite of what you would think, right? In Egypt, they did not ride donkeys. They actually rode horses there. And that was much more warlike, much more aggressive. You could think of it as driving around in a tank. People would notice that, perhaps in an unwanted sort of a way. But to ride around on a donkey, that was an emblem of wealth and of power. Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9. This is where the, this short little passage comes from that we just read. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So in the succession of the throne in Israel, there was a dispute as David was growing older. Adonijah, one of David's sons, was plotting to take over the throne surreptitiously. He was doing things behind everyone's back, hoping no one would notice what he was doing. And he was being very devious in doing this. David, however, had long been planning to give the kingdom to Solomon. And he had let people know that he was going to do this thing. But as he grew older, he kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. 1 Kings 9, 28 to 38. 1 Kings 9, 28 to 38. And I had Bill read a short segment of this. Solomon is anointed king. Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, and I, I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my lord King David live forever. And King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. And they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gion. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne for he shall be king in my place. 
And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my lord, the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gion. So the riding of a donkey is a huge big deal. It's a pronouncement of being the king. So back to Matthew 21. Verses 6 and 7. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So here in verses 6 and 7, it comes to pass. Jesus begins to ride up the mountain of the donkey. Now, Something else that you should be aware of. Bethphage and Bethel, by the way, are in the bottom of the Kidron Valley. This valley is near the north end of the Great Rift Valley, a massive earthquake fault that runs from Mozambique, right next to Madagascar, almost straight north, through Israel, and it ends in northern Lebanon. It's about 4,500 miles long. This is a huge gap that is in the surface of the earth. From space, you can see this, and it looks like there's a huge rip in the side of the planet. And it covers almost three continents to get there. It turns out that Bethphage and Bethel, by the way, are in the bottom of this, and Jerusalem is on the western mountain of this great rift valley. And Jesus is literally riding up from the bottom of this to the top. So verses 8 and 9. And this is where the crowds lose it. Verses 8 and 9. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now I want you to imagine people shouting this out in front of the priests, in front of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, in front of the Romans. Okay? This is like treason at its highest for all of those people that this no-name prophet from the middle of nowhere, Nazareth, is coming up the mountain on a donkey. How dare he? This is what they're thinking. This is what they're imagining. And by the way, we'll get to this. Let me back off. So Jesus rides up the mountain. Vast crowds have come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And they see Jesus riding on the donkey coming up the mountain. And they all know immediately what the symbolism there is. They know what's going on. 
they have been looking for a king for hundreds of years. They have not had a king. And in comes this prophet riding on a donkey into Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passover week. They knew exactly what Jesus was doing, what he was telling them. And they understood it very literally. But they misunderstood it. Verses 10 and 11. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So during the Passover festival, the population of Jerusalem would swell the city by three to five times. I want you to imagine this. So for Lancaster, this would be like um, half a million people descending on town, on the town, if you can imagine that. That's what's happening in Jerusalem this particular day. So the total number of people would be incredibly large. And for many of them, to have seen or know of this event is probable. The appearance of a notable person riding into town on a donkey would have been a huge big deal. And word of Jesus, having done this, would have spread quickly. The people understood the implication, and hence the spontaneous celebration involving the palm branches and the crying out. The people understood the symbolism of Jesus riding on the donkey, but they misunderstood it. God is trying to solve the number one problem between himself and us. God, to God, the whole issue is not the Roman occupation and the Jews. This is not the important subject. God is solving a much greater problem. And the people are missing this greater point as they're looking at this. Jesus is riding through the east gate. Now some background is in order here. We're going to go back to Solomon. After Solomon becomes king, his first order of business for about the next five years, the first five years of his reign, he builds the temple. The very first temple. Before this, for hundreds of years, about 500 years, there was no temple for the Ark of the Covenant. They had the tent of the meeting as Moses had established it. And David wanted to build the temple and was told by God, that's not your job. That job belongs to your son. Leave that for your son, Solomon. And so he does. He does not build the temple. And this is what Solomon does. He builds the temple for the Lord. Second Chronicles 5, 10 to 14. Second Chronicles 5, 10 to 14. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses had put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves, without regard to their divisions, twelve, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, Jethathun, and their sons and their kingsmen, arrayed in fine linen, with cymbals and harps and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests 
who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. I have this image of all the priests running out through the colonnades like ants off of the hill because God has filled the house, the temple. We've been talking here the last few months about Isaiah and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and how Babylon destroys the temple immediately after the city of Jerusalem falls. But before all of that happens, God leaves the temple. I just read to you where God goes to inhabit the temple. And God is there for several hundred years. And then Ezekiel talks about God leaving the temple before the fall of Jerusalem, before the Babylonians. So this is Ezekiel 10, 3 through 5, then 18 and 19, and then finally Ezekiel 11, 22 to 25. I'll read that again. Ezekiel 10, 3 through 5, then verses 18 and 19, and finally 11, chapter 11, verses 22 to 25. So here's three through five. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in and cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightest brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim were heard as far as the outer court like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. Skipping down, this is Ezekiel 10, verses 18 and 19. Ezekiel 10, 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out and the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. Going down to chapter 11, 22 and 23. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them. And the glory of, God, of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So God leaves the temple and he leaves Jerusalem. And by the way, Ezekiel after this describes how it breaks his heart to see this happen. That God no longer lives in the temple. And the temple 
is simply a building made of stone. And it's left all the gold and all the, the things that go into the worship of God are still there. But God is not there. So Jesus enters by the east gate. Many years after this, the gate is sealed. The Islamic leader, Suleiman the Great, seals up the east gate, and it remains sealed with concrete to this day. And it's waiting for the coming day of the Lord when Jesus comes again and will come in through the east gate. I have often commented, I think it's pretty funny, Suleiman wants to prevent Jesus from coming in through that gate. He doesn't understand if God wants to come in through the gate, it doesn't matter whether it's sealed or not. And this is the part that Suleiman doesn't get when he seals up the east gate. Now to this day, that east gate, which by the way, if you go to the east wall, it's actually underground. It's buried. That part of the wall is buried underneath. And the current east gate is built on top of where the east gate that is being referred to here exists. I don't know which east gate Jesus is going to come in through. It doesn't matter. It'll happen. <clears throat> All right. Later on, Ezekiel 44, 1-2. to Ezekiel 44, 1-2. to Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. Now recall, at this point, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem here to solve the great problem between God's people and God. Remember way back when we were talking about Abraham and Isaac and the donkey? There's a really important verse buried in there. And it's like it just goes by and you don't even notice it, right? It wasn't until this week as I'm digging through here I'm going, you know, my, di my switch only has three positions, dim, flicker, and off, okay? This is one of those moments where it like goes blink, blink, pay attention, Al. I'm tr Holy Spirit's going, pay attention, I'm trying to tell you something. Genesis 22, 4 through 8. Genesis 22, 4 through 8. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, kids are like this, right? 
They'll just ask you anything. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both went, both of them together. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. This Palm Sunday, again, we're looking up the hill to the east gate as Jesus rides the colt. Something new is coming. How will we know it's a new thing? How will we recognize it? God is bringing himself to bring in the outsiders. All the nations of the earth will come to God's mountain. Recalling God is holy just. God is the only one who is holy faithful. God knows what the great problem is that stands between us and him. And it's the problem of sin. God knows that the only way sin can be atoned for is through a sacrifice for the redemption of God's people, for the salvation of God's people, for the church. No one can pay for their own sins. Each and every sin requires death. Yet God knows who can pay for all the sins from eternity past through the present to eternity in the future. God knows. And God knows which servant is just and true and can stand in the gap for all the sins of God's people. Jesus. Jesus is the one. The servant, the crown prince, the king. Not created, not made, forever eternal. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Jesus is the one, the servant, the crown prince and the king. Not created, not made, forever eternal. Let's pray. Almighty God, how amazing is this image? The image of your Son coming in the valley before the village, and he sends in two of his disciples to bring back a mama donkey and a foal. And we know that the image of Jerusalem breaks Jesus' heart. And he sits on the foal and rides up the hill. And the crowds are cheering and waving palm branches and singing Hosanna. And they think Jesus is there to save them from the Romans. And Jesus is there to save them from something so much bigger. To save all of us from something that is so much bigger. 
Lord, how often do we look at the things that you do for us and we forget and we misunderstand and it goes right by and we don't even notice. Heavenly Father, tear open our hearts that we can know and see Jesus for who he is and what he did, especially this week, that we can remember what Jesus did for us, what you did for us, your plan of redemption, of salvation for all the people of God's church, for all of your people from every tribe and nation and tongue. Lord, we ask you to come down and remind us of this. as we look again this week at all the things that led to your son's great sacrifice. Lord Jesus, you are so amazing for doing this for us. And we are reminded of how incredible you are, how amazing and beautiful and powerful and meek and humble. We love you, Jesus. And we do this in the name, the name above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen.